0: Well, as Rich said, Nick uh, did a great job last week in getting us on this journey through this Old Testament book of 2 Samuel covering a lot of real estate, chapters 1 through 4. The Old Testament tells the story of God's ancient people. God's people in ancient history. 2 Samuel was written about a thousand years before Christ. And you might wonder, how in the world can this Ancient book be relevant to my modern technology-centered Netflix-informed life. <laughs> I would just ask you to stick with me because I hope to show you how their stories intertwine with ours. We talked through First Samuel last summer, and these two books, First and Second Samuel, are actually one book before they were they uh, were edited uh, in the English version. And in the introduction to 1 Samuel, which is, in other words, an introduction to the entire book, there's a woman named Hannah who in a prayer which is also prophetic, she outlines the major themes of the book, predicting, in a sense, what will happen to its primary characters. I want to begin there this morning. 1 Samuel 2 verses 9 and 10. This is what Hannah prayed. He God will protect His faithful ones. But the wicked will disappear in darkness. No one will succeed by strength alone. Those who fight against the Lord will be shattered. He thunders against them from heaven. The Lord judges throughout the earth. He gives power to His King. He increases the strength of His anointed. Now, one of the main characters is David. And he was that anointed one. But like Jesus, he was not readily recognized. He was at first opposed by Israel's existing king, King Saul, who was very jealous and paranoid and narcissistic. Saul knew that David was the rightful king, so for the better part of a decade, he hunted him down with the intent to kill him. But Saul was fighting against And in the end, his life was shattered, just as Hannah had predicted. So chapters 1-4 through tell the awful story of David's rivals eliminating each other, a brutal practice so common in the ancient world. But for David's part, he waited on God to fulfill his promise to him, and he did not take matters into his own hands. So that brings us to chapter 5. And we're going to pray here in just a moment, but before I pray, I want to begin with a couple questions for you. Very simple questions are, are you, as you sit here this morning, and as you think about your life, are you experiencing the blessing of God? Do you have an everyday confidence? Do you have an everyday awareness that God is alive, that He's blessing you, that He is working in you? Couldn't we agree that to experience the blessing of God, the favor of God, the realness of God, couldn't we agree that that would be a good thing? What does that that feel? How do I receive Well, the spiritual pathway that David chooses will point us in the right direction. So let's go ahead and open up with prayer as we think about those questions and think about our own lives. All right, pray with me. Father, I pray that uh, through the power of your Spirit, Jesus would make Himself real here to us this morning. In a way that would shatter our objections, in a way that would open up our hearts to receive a gift this morning that perhaps we did not even anticipate nor expect, or even know that we needed when we hustled to get here this morning. Father, we ask you to do something here this morning very special. Something that we can never plan for or expect in our own imagination. Invade our hearts in a way, helping us to get to know you and to love you a little more this morning. It's through Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Those of you who are here sure know that we will have the text behind uh, me on the screen here, but you can also, if you want to follow along right in the text in our Pew Bible, page 257, chapter 5. I'm going to do something very simple this morning. I want to share the three major movements of this story, and then we'll ask the question, what difference does it make in my life? Alright? Here's the first section of this story. Verse 1 through 5, David becomes king over all of Israel. Verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David in Hebrew and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king in Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah 7 years and 6 months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. You see, up to this point, David had only been tribe of our king of one tribe, Judah. And now he is entrusted with the entire country. Nick brought this out so well last week. This is the first time in history that God's chosen king is reigning over his people in a concrete and earthly kingdom. So that's the first thing. David becomes king over all the nations. Here's the second thing, the movement of this story, beginning in verse 6. God establishes the heartbeat of the nation. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and lame will ward you off. Thinking David cannot make his way here. It's a very fortified area. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites... Let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Now let me clarify maybe a couple of confusing statements here. First, this is not saying, the text is not saying that David hates the lame and the blind. As a matter of fact, in just a few chapters, a a man who is lame will share at David's table, I shall share David's table for his entire life, so he's not saying that rather what David is doing is he is deflecting back the sarcastic, derogatory comments made about his men and reassigning it back to the Jebusites friends there's no flag for taunting here thrown at David, this is outright good motivation psychological motivation for his men, and he has a way to get in It doesn't mean that his soul hates them. I take that to mean that he is opposed to them because they are opposed to The Jebusites had historically been a thorn in Israel's side. I mean, they are right there. This is right in the heart of the promised land. And they were a constant reminder that the Israelites had never fulfilled the promise by God to take... The land They were right there. We meet the Jebusites way back in Joshua chapter 10. And even the great general Joshua could not drive the Jebusites from this stronghold. Now, let me just add here, as a little parenthesis, I should add here, that in the past we have talked a great length about the nature of this limited holy warfare. And you might wonder, how could... Is this the same as Jihad? Is this the same as what we see today in the Holy war? And the simple answer to that question is no. There are significant differences and if this is a topic that's an obstacle to you, I'd be happy to talk with you one on one Uh, if you were not, uh, again, there when we addressed this issue quite extensively um, uh, really in the past several summers. But I'd love to help you with that if that's an obstacle for you. So, pick it up back in verse 9 here. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. Milo literally means mound and referred to some kind of defense or fortification that was protecting the city. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Remember, the point here is that David is establishing the heartbeat of the nation, Jerusalem or the city of David, or the city of Zion, will become very prominent through the rest of the Bible. Prior to this, Jerusalem was mentioned 15 times in the Bible. After this, it will be referenced over 600 times. It has tremendous symbolic significance. In Hebrews 12, Jerusalem is called the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the heart of the new heavens and new earth, mentioned in Revelation 21 as coming down, the city coming down from heaven. As David reigned in the earthly Jerusalem, so Jesus will reign and lead in the heavenly city. Now, was all of that in David's mind when he took the city? I don't think so. I don't think so. No, David acted with what was in front of him. There were many reasons, strategic reasons, to take Jerusalem. One, it was centrally located, and David needed to unite the northern and southern tribes. Those of you who know the story about why Washington, D.C., became our capital city know that it was also partly to unite north and south. Secondly, the topography of Jerusalem made it easy to defend. And thirdly, David envisioned, as we'll see in future chapters, that Jerusalem was the perfect spot to become the religious center, the spiritual heartbeat, the spiritual capital of the entire nation. Now here's the third part, the third movement of our story. David defeats his enemies. It's the first part. Look at verse 17, first session this. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all of Israel, all the Philistines went on to search for David. All. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now, we can picture very easily the Philistines were not really happy about this development. And I'm sure that they are more than a little ticked off about David deceiving King Achish, one of the Philistine kings. You might remember that from last summer. If you don't remember that story, go back and read 1 Samuel 29. You can bet these Philistines were not happy campers about David reasserting himself into the scene here. But we can take again from this. It's a good reminder... With the Philistines attacking Jerusalem, whenever there is progress in God's kingdom, it should not surprise us, there is opposition. Verse 18. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. This is a valley about three miles southeast of Jerusalem. Rephaim means giant. (laughs) And certainly both sides have not forgotten David's humiliated at the feet of the Philistine giant Goliath when David was just a boy some years ago verse 19 and David inquired he prayed of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David go up for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hands. David does not trust in his own strength as Hannah had borne against. But the first thing he does is he seeks God. Verse 20, And David came to Baal-Perazim, and David defeated them there, that place. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal-Perazim. the strength and courage on David's part. Is it his strength or God's? Is it his power or God's? Is it his courage or God's? Where does one begin and the other end? When he is aligned with God, they are moving like one. God's strength, power, and courage are working in David, making him a new man. David grasped this reality. And he gives God thus all the credit. And look at how he pictures God. Very significant picture. As a breaking flood, leveling all of his enemies. God is one who bursts forth and breaks through every challenging obstacle wonder how many of you have ever seen the direct aftermath of a flood. In 1977, I was doing a college visit or college tour, and I visited my aunt and uncle who lived in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Johnstown is a, a cold country on the western part of the western side of the state. It is that I believe, four devastating killer floods. This was in 1977 and just a few months before I visited, they had had one of those devastating floods. It was uh, uh, the, 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 the sights were unbelievable. Twisted concrete, uh, roads, bridges completely washed away, scattered debris, trees down, houses picked up and moved like they were dollhouses, Johnstown sits, it's a city that sits between two very steep mountains it's, a, it's, it's very vulnerable to flooding and what happened on this July night in 1977 was a storm stalled over Johnstown and nearly 12 inches of rain fell in 24 hours six area dams failed And this was never supposed to happen again the largest dam to fail released over one hundred and one million, million gallons of water. Not only were the sewer systems backing up, but now a wall of water came into and crushed the downtown area. If you ever saw the movie, remember the movie Two Thousand and Four: The Movie Impossible, which depicted the tsunami that came from the Indian Ocean. And if you could picture how terrifying it would be to see a wall. Of water coming at you. One local civic leader said it was like somebody dropping a atomic bomb on Johnstown. I question what kind of force it would take to do that. David likens the power of God to this. This is the power of God. This is the picture David uses to capture a picture. The power of a leveling flood. It was such a momentous victory that he named the place of battle a breaking flood. He never wanted anyone to forget. He did not want future generations to forget that God fights for His people when they trust in Him. David gives this somewhat humorous conclusion or the writer, I should say Samuel gives a somewhat humorous conclusion in verse 21 and he says and the Philistines left their idols there and David and his men carried them away in the aftermath the Philistines abandoned their idols, the same idols that they prayed to, the same idols that they trusted in and there's a play on words here to play on words in the Hebrew suggesting that not only did they abandon their idols, but their idols also abandoned them. Look at now the next section. Verse 22. So not only is there one battle, but the final movement of the story, now there's sort of a, a part B to it, the Philistines come again. This is the nature of those who are in opposition to God. They, this is their mode of operation. They come again. Verse 22, the Philistines came up yet and again and spread out in the valley of the Rephaim. In verse 23, and when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up. You shall not go up. Rather, go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. Okay, now let's not Go too quickly over this. Notice what David does the second time. This is so significant. If we read too fast, we'll miss it. David seeks the Lord afresh. David seeks God again. It's a new day, it's a different battle. He does not rely on what happened last month, last year, or even yesterday. I just got to tell you, if this was me. I would have not wanted to confront that terrible feeling of powerlessness again. You know that feeling? That feeling of powerlessness, of vulnerability. I would not have wanted to confront that again. I would have wanted to mask my fears by saying, I've got this. Hey, it worked last time. I I know what's going to happen. I can control this. I don't need God again in this circumstance. I know what to expect. I think that's probably how I would have handled it. I can rely on my past experiences. Verse 24. And when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, wow, what is he talking about? When you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. What in the world is the sound of the Marching! It is God on the move. He is coming like wind, and the leaves on the blossom trees shake as He rushes forward. And God shows Himself as one here who is going out in advance, in front of, and fighting for His people. Notice also those two very powerful words in verse 24. "Rouse yourself. Let's take a moment and think about that. Rouse yourself. Another version says, Act decisively. David needed to act in order to fully enter into what God was doing. He must act quickly to work in concert with the Lord. Verse 25 says, And says, David did as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Eva to Bethlehem. Another epic victory. And not only bringing peace, but a greater understanding of who God is. And so now with peace on their way steps to establish Jerusalem as a true spiritual capital. This is a story of how Israel began with its rightful king, a new kingdom, stable and solidified, a new capital city, and most importantly an experiential understanding of the shepherd heart of God. What can we learn from this story? What difference does this story mean? Let me share three things. I'll walk through these. These are really our practical applications for the day. Number one, practice His presence. Number two, take heroic actions. And number three, believe in a God who fights for you. First, practice His presence. We'll look at verse 10 here in a moment. But nestle rightly. Middle of this chapter, the writer reveals David's secret of success. It really is not that complicated, it actually is very simple. You can go to the self help if you want to be successful. You can go to the self help section of the bookstore and you'll see plenty of theories and formulas for achieving success, for growing greater. Frankly, you'll find some similar theme books in the religious section as well. Hey, 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 hey. Listen, please listen. You don't need another formula for success. You don't need to learn how to get your way. You don't need to learn how to release the tiger within. You don't need some instant oatmeal pathway to spirituality. God's presence with you, in you, you need more of Him. Look at verse 10. David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, Take a look at this verse quickly. First, remember what Nick said last week? What does it mean when the Lord is in all caps? It means that is His name. His name is Yahweh. It means He is the God who keeps His promises. It means He is the God who redeems. And look, there's an additional title given He is the God of hosts, literally, the God of armies of angels. A God of untold majesty, a God who possesses all power. This is the God that David is still getting to know. And as long as David relied on him and experienced his leadership, his power, and his his power, his leadership, his courage, then they were aligned. They're in a cooperative, conversational relationship. Now, the New Testament language, we call this abiding, or remaining in His love. And as long as David this, did this, he kept growing and becoming greater and greater. And now you might be sitting out there saying, Chris, how do I do this? How do I actually do this? And all I can say to you, it is not a matter matter of what you believe, this practicing His presence originally bubbles up from a simple faith that God is, that He sees my good, that He longs to bless me, and that He keeps His promises. Practicing His presence. This bubbles up when we Believe these things. He's seeking my good. He longs to bless me. He's faithful to his promises. This is the life of faith. So maybe you're out there saying, okay, Pastor, Chris, I got you on this. Hey, I've got you on this. I've got it. I've got it. I know what you're saying. It's basically the applications every Sunday. You want me to read my Bible more. You want me to pray more. You want me to attend church more, etc., etc., etc. That's what you're telling me to do, right? Well, I'm not telling you not to do those things. But those disciplines are not equivalent to what I am saying. What I am saying is, There is a beautiful and revolutionary spiritual dynamic of accepting this reality that His presence is with me as I live, work, eat, play, and love. It is an ever-growing awareness of the power of His presence. Okay? That's number one. We can stop there, right? Amen? But... Well, we can't stop there because these other two are intertwined with the first. These are mutually reinforcing points. Okay? Secondly, we must take heroic actions. You see, you might be sitting there, you might be interpreting what I'm saying to be the other extreme. Okay, Pastor Chris, you're saying that you want me just to sit around the cross-legged and just take really philosophical, abstract thoughts about God. And if you're thinking that, that's also not what I'm saying. That is not what I'm saying. David is our example here. You see, God loves, and because He loves, He is active in the world. And as we practice His presence, God will lead us to take heroic actions just as he led David. When we see God at work, when we hear the wind rushing through the leaves of the balsam trees, we need to act decisively. We need to rouse ourselves. This is our part God affords to you and me a significant part of what He is doing in the world. Now your heroic actions will look different than David's. And maybe to understand our heroic actions, let's talk for a little bit more about greatness. We saw the word greatness in verse 10, but what really is greatness? Is it influence? Is it head knowledge? Is it charisma? What does greatness actually mean? I think the answer is in verse 12. Verse 12 says, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Catch that? Catch his understanding? Why did did God raise David to this position? Because he was king over Israel, king for Israel. This is the essence of great servant leadership. David was a great man. And friends, just historically perhaps David was one of the greatest men. I think you could make an argument. David was one of the greatest men, not only in the Bible, but one of the most accomplished men who's ever lived in the history of the world. It would have been easy for David to feel entitled and say, wow God, hey, I'm glad. I'm glad that you and I finally come to appreciate my talents, in LeBron speak, it would be, I've decided to take my talents to Jerusalem. Let's hope he we stays well. That's okay. yeah. Let's just go and take a moment and Let's go ahead and take him over pray right now. Purpose for which God had raised him up. Here is the Bible's meaning of greatness from this context. Here's what greatness means. Here's what greatness means. Others experience blessing, life, joy, and protection because of you. That's what greatness is. Dads, you can be great. Moms, you can be great. Friends, you can be great. Teachers, you can be great. If you're employing and supervising people, you can be great. Don't let the world define greatness for you. Let God define greatness for you. God is calling every one of you to greatness. Greatness might mean inviting a lost friend to our Discover Life class. Greatness might mean initiating with that hard-to-get-along family member who needs encouragement. Greatness might not mean running, but pressing into a relational conflict. Greatness might mean initiating with your children at a level they are unaccustomed to. Greatness might mean taking a stand against an abusive relationship. Greatness might mean finally addressing your problem of anger that is stealing the peace of your home. Greatness might be serving and bringing the gospel to those who are feeling hopeless or hungry or the imprisoned. Just a few weeks we'll share an opportunity for you men to be a part of helping other men who face the hopelessness of incarceration. Another opportunity, I had a chance on Friday to sit down, Friday afternoon to sit down with our volunteer leaders from here and from two other churches. And together we are reaching out to the refugee community um, on uh, this uh, just north side of town uh, in an apartment complex called Whispering Oaks. And all of these volunteers from our church and the other churches are doing a fantastic work. It may be initially uncomfortable for you to teach English to an adult or to tutor a child from a different country or culture or different religion. By the way, we can hardly keep, just FYI, we can hardly keep enough volunteers in order to meet the demand. The apartment that the three churches have culturally rented is used multiple times a week by all three churches, educational programs, youth programs, programs, meeting these in various ways, and all along trying to share why we are doing this, to share how we are motivated by God's love for His ministry. Indeed, that apartment in the middle of that complex, hundreds of apartments, thousands of residents, it indeed is a city on a hill. We should all remember this morning. Greatness means being a blessing not only to our church, not only to your family, but also to our city. Finally, last point. Believe in a God who fights for you. Again, all these points are interrelated. God is a lover. God is a warrior against your enemies. If we take a step back from what's going on here to see the larger picture, What's really happening here? What's happening is that this once insignificant, ragtag group of nobodies, Israel, is beginning to shine forth under the leadership of David. The kingdom is growing. And even the mighty Philistines, the bullies of the region, can't stop. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I will build my church on this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's the same lesson. The lesson here is that God has the power to defeat your enemies. And who or what are your enemies? Let me suggest this morning what your primary enemies are. Your primary enemies are the false beliefs. They are the false beliefs that prevent you from laying hold of God's promises and receiving their blessing. I think that's your main enemy: false beliefs, wrong, our attitudes that prevent you from believing, laying hold of God's promises, receiving their blessing. self-sufficiency, self-love, giving way to stress, perfectionism, allowing anxious thoughts to control you, obsessing. Friends, these are the enemies. These are the enemies against your soul that prevent you from laying hold of God's promises. Practicing the presence of God taking heroic actions, seeing God come through for you experientially as the breaking flood begins to fill you with confidence that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. As you live by faith, your enemies begin to give way under the rushing flood. As pastors, this is what we each of you to not just have head of knowledge about but to experience his favor, his blessing, his affirmation, they are a treasure that nothing in this world can hold. Came to nothing, no relationship, no amount of money, no perfect house, no getting to the top of your career can match this the endless worth of having God's favor and affirmation and blessing upon your life. The sooner you get that, the sooner you lose everything for Him, the quicker you will taste this soul-consuming love. Friends, this book, what is it? What is this book? It is essentially a promise. It's a promise. And those are made effective. Those promises are made available to us. Those promises are actuated through Jesus. Look at Ephesians 1.3 with me. Paul begins the book of Ephesians with this amazing statement. Again, don't read it too quickly. In in, in exaltation, Paul says, Praise Be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with a few spiritual blessings in Christ, (laughs) with a lot of spiritual blessings in Christ, with many spiritual blessings in Christ, with ninety percent of the blessings of, of Christ. It's not what it says. Every spiritual blessing in Christ to have His blessing is to have His favor. To have His blessing is to have His support. To have His blessing is to have His affirmation of you. Through Christ, every spiritual blessing is made available to you. Through faith, we do have it all. We have it all. Everything of lasting value, everything of weight and glory is already yours if you're a believer in Christ. There's not some untold mystery still lurking in the universe, yet not revealed, awaiting George Lucas or some other master to awaken. It's not there, it's been done. The mystery, Jesus Christ, came to earth as one of us and revealed all that God is to us. What is left for us to do is to believe. Believe in. The prophet Isaiah said, that God longs, He yearns, His heart just moves, there's movement inside of Him. He longs, doesn't say to judge you, doesn't say that He longs to uh, kick you out, doesn't say that He longs because He's disgusted with you. It says what His heart is turning for, what His heart is breaking for, is He longs to bless you. He longs, he yearns, he aches to be gracious to you. Will you open up your heart today to receive him? Will you open up your heart today to receive his blessing? Let me ask the band and ushers you can get in place. It is the first Sunday of the month. We have concluded our message talking about how Jesus has actuated the promises of God. They are fulfilled through Him, and so we're going to take this, uh, uh, take part of this ceremony which Jesus instituted on the night of His death, the Jewish Passover, translated into the New Covenant as communion, comprising these two symbols: the bread representing His body, and the juice representing His blood. When we take the bread and juice and take it inside of us. We are saying that we belong to Him and that we belong to one another as members of His body. Again, you can read about our communion there in the bulletin. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to come. It doesn't matter if you're from a different church tradition. If you are a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to come and take this communion. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus... We're so glad that you're here, so thankful that you would come and investigate this message along uh, alongside us. And you're free to come and to sort of see how this happened. You may remain in your your seat, whatever whatever you prefer. Uh, the ushers are going to release you row by row. Go ahead and take the elements, take them back to your seat, and in a prayerful, reflective moment, you can take it on your own. As we continue to sing together, uh, we'll also take our offering during this next segment it too is part of our worship. As we give not only our heart, but we also give to God our resources. Bless Him and state to Him that He is the very first. He is first place in our lives as we see the verses here.